Our scripture passage this morning is Genesis chapter 1, verse 31 through chapter 2, verse 3. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. God, we come in here after busy weeks, hard days, long days blessings and setbacks and we come in here as a people corporately confessing that we're weak and we find our strength in you and we're delighted and reminded of the fact that you in fact display your power in our weakness thank you for being strong on our behalf God I pray that you'd be strong on our behalf this morning and we pray that you'd be strong on behalf of all the churches of Abilene meeting this morning physically and online. I want to pray specifically this morning for Broadview Baptist Church that you would be with them as they gather that your spirit would be near and would be at work through the word and you would be helping the members there to fight sin and trust in Christ and treasure Christ. Continue to build a strong body there just as you are doing here and we pray that you would do that for us God we pray for our government pray for all those in authority locally at the state level nationally God that you would change hearts that you would turn hearts we would love to see our leaders rule with righteous and wise values Lord may they not be those that pander to the madness of the crowds God as we turn to your word would you refresh us Would you stir our hearts, kindle our affections for Jesus and what he's done for us. May everything we do that we've been called to do, that we will be called to do, be grounded on the solid rock of the grace of Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, we Americans are a restless people. We are frazzled. We are frantic. We are distracted. We are depressed and we're really depressed more than ever even in a pandemic we still have more niceties and comforts and luxuries than any generation has in the history of the world it's good to zoom out and remind ourselves of that on occasion our problems are so (laughs) petty compared to the problems of most of human history it's one of the many reasons it's good to study history you know we'll, we'll complain you know man my iphone's running slow they just put must have put out a new one recently You mean that little device that fits in your pocket, that holds more information than all the libraries of the countries combined that will assist you in untold ways every day that it would take other generation days, weeks, months, even years for? But we're frustrated because we had to wait about three seconds instead of 0.7 seconds. And besides technology, we really are 
the most spoiled generation to ever live, and yet we are the most depressed people to ever live. I'm reading a book right now. By the way, ladies, I would recommend it. It's by a lady named Rebecca Merkel, and it's called Eve, like Adam and Eve, Eve in Exile, and it's on biblical femininity. But at the beginning, she's critiquing uh, the feminist movement and particularly the second wave of feminism and on. And so she, I just was struck by these quotes that she shared in the first part of the book that 26%, one in four, 26% of American women are unhappy enough to go to the doctor and get a prescription to try to overcome their unhappiness. And her point in the book is that in 1963, it was 21%. So it moved from one in five to one in four ladies that are seeking medical help over unhappiness, anxiety, depression, those sorts of things. Her point is feminism hasn't been good for women. It's actually been harmful. She says in there that women are more than two and a half times likely to be on psychotropic meds than men. But it's a male problem too. Zooming out a little bit, there was a 15% increase in the number of people taking antidepressants from the years 2015 to 2019. 15%. That number was 38% for teenagers. Same year, 2015, 38% increase in the amount of teenagers seeking and a depressant medication. And of course, the pandemic's only made it worse, hasn't it? We've all battled this in some ways over the last several months. According to the research, the number of prescriptions filled for antidepressants, anti-anxiety, anti-insomnia medication increased 21% from basically a month's time, mid-February to mid-March of this year. 21%. We are depressed. We're more anxious than ever. And I don't think it's because our chemical makeup is somehow different now than it was in generations past. We are a restless people. Why? Why then? If we're so privileged and so blessed and have so many comforts, why is this the case? Well, it's funny to see secular psychologists try to come up with answers for what's wrong with the world. And a lot of them will say it's lack of community. And especially during the pandemic, they'll say that screens, people are glued to screens and technology can't substitute for life on life interaction. That's absolutely right. Pixels can never replace people. That's true, but I think there's more to it. I think there's a, 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 tel, a telic problem, meaning there's no telos, there's no purpose, there's no end. Just think about it. What does the world, what does evolution, what does atheism say the end of all things is? There's really no reason to live at the end of the day. And people need a reason to live. People need vision. People need hope. People need mission. They need work to do. But outside of Jesus, what's the point? I mean, really, talk to your unbelieving friends. Ask them, like, what's the point of your life? What's the point of anything? Remember, because if they believe in evolution like so many do, it's a purposeless world. We have no real reason to live. It's just strong, eat the weak. We're just molecules in motion for a limited period of time and then over. No life after death, no hope, no meaning, no morality, nihilism. Just get yours while you can, and we know that that doesn't work for long. See, when we don't live in accord with God and his ways, we're destined to discontentment and lack of fulfillment in this age and then destined for judgment in the age to come. As Augustine prayed in the fourth century, he prayed this, God, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So let's look this morning, see what kind of help we can get from God's word as we consider the end of Genesis 1 and the beginning of Genesis 2. And it's actually an unfortunate chapter break because the creation narrative doesn't really end until chapter 2, verse 3. 
the brother, I think his name was Stephanus, that did the chapter, these verse divisions, not that long ago, about 500 years ago. He did a really good job, but this morning we're going to see a couple of places where he didn't. This is one of them. So let's look at two realities here. One, the goodness of creation, and then let's spend most of our time on the seventh day. So first, the goodness of creation. Look at Genesis 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So as we've been seeing, God has created his world, the triune God, and then he finishes up and he steps back and he says, this is good. And he said that multiple times. I want you to feel the weight of it. He said it seven times. Look back at chapter 1, verse 4. God saw that the light was good. Look down at the end of verse 10. God saw that it was good. The end of verse 12. God saw that it was good. The end of verse 18. God saw that it was good. The end of verse 21. God saw that it was good. He wants you to know. He thinks it's good. The end of verse 25. God saw that it was good. And then our verse, verse 31. Behold, it was very good. Not just good, very good. God loves the world that he's created. Listen to how the psalmist puts it in chapter 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, he pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. See, God cares for this world. God cares for the created order. And there was this early teaching, this false teaching. It was in the Greek world. It was pervasive. Just think, just think Plato, think Aristotle, if you know your history and philosophy. And it was called Gnosticism. And the fundamental tenet of Gnosticism was that stuff, the material world, physical things, bad. Spiritual, the immaterial, that's the good stuff. And that pretty quickly infiltrated Christian teaching in terms of heresy. In fact, a lot of the New Testament is combating the heresy of Gnosticism, even if it doesn't call it that. For example, like 1 John, for example, uh, is condemning any teaching that says Jesus actually didn't come in the flesh. Well, if flesh is bad, evil, wicked, per Gnosticism, then of course God couldn't become flesh, and so they denied that he actually became a person. He just seemed that way. A whole lot of the heresies of the early church can be traced back to Gnosticism. And it's infected us. Even to this day, we tend to downplay the material world. And it's affect the way we think of heaven even, right? So think, let's do a little footnote real quick on some eschatology here. What, how's it going to go down in my opinion? Well, let's say that the Lord tarries and he doesn't come back while any of us are alive. Which personally, I'm moving to the opinion. Let me put this down. Personally, I think that we've, we're just getting started here on this world. Now, we ought to always be ready, and I pray regularly, Maranatha, Lord, come. I hope I'm wrong, but I think we're just getting started in this world. I think the Lord's not going to come back again. No one knows the day or hour. It's my personal opinion that we've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years left, which is one of the reasons I'm so passionate about us thinking about the next generation and the generation after that. As we build and work and pray, we ought to be thinking about our grandkids' grandkids and what we're doing now. But, okay, let me pick this back up. So what do I think the Bible says about how it's going to go down? Let's say he doesn't return in our lifetime. Well, we're going to die at some point. And what's going to happen at death, really what death is, is the, the tearing apart of the body and the soul. That was never supposed to happen. That's what we're going to see in Genesis 3, even this morning. That's what death is. And so our body remains, but it is still our body. 
So our body remains here on earth. Our soul, I believe, goes to be with the Lord immediately. Some people think the soul goes to sleep. I don't really see that in Scripture. I think we go to be with the Lord immediately in terms of our soul. And that's what we normally think of when we think of heaven. It's what we often sing about. I'll fly away to God's celestial shore. But that's just a parenthesis. That's what theologians call the the intermediate stage. That's not eternity. Eternity is when Christ returns to this world and reunites our body and souls. You know what we call that? Resurrection. That's why we celebrate Easter. So we will, for eternity, be in physical bodies on this physical earth. It will just be redeemed and rescued and refined and freed from sin. It's not all, you know, floaty, harpy, fatty baby. That's what we think of when we think of heaven. No, it's this world redeemed. God cares about this world. The story of the Bible is creation to new creation. He says it's good. This world is a good gift from God. Not just good, very good. But he's not done yet. So second, let's spend most of our time here on the seventh day. Look at Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. And all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So here I want us to think about the storyline, capital S storyline of Scripture. There's a lot of different ways that we can talk about the unity of the Bible, all kinds of ways. Ten or 15 different themes that really unite it from Genesis to Revelation. One of those is rest. So I want us to do a little word work this morning with these five hooks to help us along the plot. First hook, rest established. Second hook, rest lost. Third hook, rest promised. Fourth hook, rest realized. Fifth hook, rest complete. And I promise to have you out of here by (laughs) 2.30. So here we have rest established. God finishes his work and rests on the seventh day. And of course, God's rest here is not a rest from exhaustion. God wasn't tired. This is a rest of completion. He didn't need a break, but his work of creation is done. For example, you know, we're in, a, we're in an election year. Did y'all know that? So we're in an election year, and we've got a couple of candidates, Donald Trump and Kamala Harris. And right now, they're in the work. They're working, right? They're campaigning. But eventually, one of them is going to win. Probably, like, we'll, we'll know the results, like, February or March of next year, once the flames subside. But when they win, don't lose me here. I've lost it. When they win... And they enter the White House, if it's still standing. Isn't that really when the work begins? The campaign, that's all got to happen. But that's really just creating an atmosphere where now they can begin to try to accomplish the goals for which they ran for office. That's what we see right here. God's not done with his work. He's just ready to start now. He's now ready. He's created the domain of his kingdom. And now he will launch his plans for history. And he finishes and he blesses the seventh day. He makes it holy. Now, if you're you're a theology type, let me just mention something real quick. Sometimes interpreters try to put a command in these verses. It's not there. Sometimes people will try to say this is about us keeping the Sabbath. 
But this is not a command for us. These are facts about God. And did you notice that something was missing? If you reread it carefully, I think you would. It's like the dog that didn't bark. You remember that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story? Silver Blaze, Sherlock solves the story by the dog that didn't bark. The key passage goes like this. Gregory was one of the Scotland detectives, and Gregory asks, is there any other point to which you would wish to draw my attention? And Holmes says, to the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. Gregory says, the dog did nothing in the nighttime. And Holmes says, that was the curious incident. On the seventh day, the dog didn't bark. Do you notice what was missing? Again, if you've had the privilege of being in this all week, you would notice that the silence is actually blaring. Let me show you. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. There at the end of verse 5, there was evening and there was morning the first day. Look at verse 8. There was evening and there was morning the second day. Look at verse 13. There was evening and there was morning the third day. Verse 19, there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Verse 23, there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And then verse 31, there was evening, there was morning the sixth day. There was no front refrain of morning and evening on the seventh day. What should we take away from this? Clearly, it's not an accident, right? God is the author of Scripture. There are no accidents. And also, keep in mind that this seventh day was the only one that was blessed out of all of them. It was the only one that was sanctified. And notice he mentioned the number seven three different times, unlike the other days. This day is special because this seventh day was intended to have no ending. In other words, God resting was him entering into enjoyment with us and with his world. Clearly, the seventh day is meant to provide the ongoing context which human beings in Genesis 2 onward are meant to operate. They're supposed to operate in the seventh day, the good life, life as it was meant to be in harmony with our creator, in harmony with one another, in harmony with the created order. No sin, no pain, no shame, no curse. Joy and fulfillment in our work, but it doesn't last long, does it? When we have rest lost. Everything was good, all was good. Adam and Eve living in harmony with their maker, with one another, with the world. All was well. Life it was meant to be. But then, at a crucial point, they trust in themselves rather than in the good word of their creator. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat. Of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God had given them anything they wanted. It was an ocean of yeses with one clear no. It's a good word for parents. An ocean of yeses with one clear no. But what do they do here? They go after the no. They disobey God, they trust in themselves, they believe the lie instead of the word of their good God. And what is the response? Death. They will become fertilizer for the land they're intended to have dominion over. They're called to have dominion over and to subdue it and the earth subdues them six feet under. Decay, 
destruction. Look at chapter 3, verse 18. No rest. Work now cursed, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the, eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Rest is gone. Our work is hard now. Now we lack the fellowship with God we were created to have. Look at verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve first called to guard the garden and because of their sin, now the garden has to be guarded from them. Exiled from God's presence, broken fellowship, East of Eden, death, shame, anxiety, depression, lack of rest. But God doesn't give up on us. Rest promised. In some ways, again, we could summarize the whole story of Scripture as rest given, rest lost, rest promised. Getting back to the garden, getting back to fellowship with God, getting back to what we were created for. And so the question becomes right here in Genesis 3 is when will rest be restored? So let's, let's take a, a stroll through the canon of Scripture. Let's move now to the book of Exodus. In Exodus 20, God had formed his people. He had made a nation, and then he gives them commandments. And one of the commandments, the Ten Commandments, is the fourth commandment about obeying the Sabbath. It was really important. It was, it was the reason. It was grounded in this seventh day. You should keep the Sabbath holy. It was part of what set Israel apart. In fact, in Exodus 31, it's called the sign of the covenant. It was one of the most important commandments of the whole Old Covenant. And then a couple chapters later in Exodus 33, we read this. You remember this story? It's right after that golden calf. Listen to what God tells Moses. He says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. It's promised. And that's what the people of God need. And moving along the story, then we come to Joshua. So now the people of God have been formed and they're going to enter the promised land. And listen to what we read in Joshua 11. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest for more. God is giving his people a glimpse of rest in the promised lands. And then towards the end of the book, we read this. Rest promised, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. They took possession of it, and they settled there, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And then in the very end, Joshua 23, we read this. A long time afterward... When the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years. So Israel's given a glimpse of this rest, but it didn't last, did it? Even thinking of Joshua, what comes after Joshua? Judges, the most unrestful book there is. They need a righteous king, don't they? Judges aren't working. They need a righteous king to give them rest, and so that's exactly what God does. He raises up a man after his own heart. So we have these promises to King David 
in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let me read a little bit from these promises. Verse 1, now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from his surrounding enemies. These are a lot of promises we don't have. Let me just read a few more. Look at verse 10 if you're there. If not, I think we've got it. Verse 10, to this king, here's the promises. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God makes these promises. He raises up a king and says, one of your offspring, this is what we talk about at Christmas. This is what we sing about at Christmas. You'll have an offspring, David, who will rule forever and ever and ever. And one of the many things he's going to do is bring rest, which leads us to rest realized. New Testament begins with Jesus, son of David. He comes in and shows us that the Sabbath always pointed to him. It was always all about him. In fact, Matthew records a story where some of the Pharisees were angry at Jesus like they often were. And the reason was on the Sabbath day, some of his disciples were plucking grain and, and eating it and not paying much attention. And Pharisees, always mad about something, uh, accuse him. And Jesus quotes scripture and says, look, don't you remember when David did a very similar thing? And then in Matthew chapter 12, verse 8, Jesus says, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. It always pointed to him. Sabbath rest is found in Jesus. In fact, we have another unfortunate chapter break because if you remember the very last verses of chapter 11, many of you know them right before that narrative where Jesus ends saying he's Lord of the Sabbath, it goes like this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is that the Jesus you know? Your Savior invites you. He bids you come. If you find yourself tired, you a weary saint this morning, You heavy laden, depressed, anxious, rest is found. Indeed, rest is restored in the Lord of the Sabbath. Which, by the way, is that we as a new covenant church aren't required to obey the Sabbath commandment. Remember, the Sabbath is a Saturday. And so we don't have to obey the Sabbath commandment. We're freed from that now that we're no longer under the old covenant because it pointed to him. Sabbath commandment pointed to rest in him. How do we obey the Sabbath? We rest in Christ. Let me read from Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
We don't have to keep the law anymore because Hebrews 10.1, the law, the whole law, not just the Sabbath, was a shadow that pointed forward to the substance, Greek word soma, which means body. I like that imagery better. It's a shadow pointing to the body who is Christ. And so we're freed from it. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans 14, verse 5. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. It's a little bit different than you'll be stoned if you pick up sticks on the Sabbath that we find in the law, right? Because we're not under it anymore. Now what matters is honoring the Lord. You want to keep the Sabbath? Great, keep it. Just don't judge anyone. You don't want to? That's okay too. You're free. Be convinced in your own mind and honor God. Turn over to Hebrews 3. I want, to, I want, you, I want your eyes to be on this passage. Hebrews chapter 3. Towards the end of your Bible if you're new to it. It's page 1205 in my Bible. Hebrews chapter 3. This is a complicated passage like most of, most of Hebrews, but let's walk through it together. He kind of ties things up for us, what we've been seeing. Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and he quotes Psalm 95, which we read earlier, Nathan read earlier. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, because the Spirit's ultimately the author of Scripture, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. So notice something real quick. David in Psalm 95 is actually reflecting on the wilderness story of Numbers 14. That's going to matter here in a moment. Numbers 14, they're supposed to enter the promised land with Joshua. They're supposed to have rest. The author of Hebrews is just reading his Bible carefully to show much later David's writing something. That's going to matter. In other words, the Bible's a story and the chronology matters. Notice what he said. Look at verse 10. Still quoting Psalm 95. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's a reality for everyone in here. We could fall away. And what does he tell us is the main way to keep from falling away? Verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What's the key to finishing well? What's the key to not being hardened? The local church. Being around brothers and sisters in Christ who will exhort you every day that today don't harden your heart. Why? Because repentance will be harder tomorrow. Repent today. Look at verse 14. For we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Numbers 24. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? They left. They went into the promised land. Verse 17. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Another unfortunate chapter break. Verse chapter 4. Therefore... While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, 
lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. How do you enter rest? You believe. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has said somewhere, he has somewhere spoken, Genesis 2, of the seventh day. In this way, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward in the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You tracking with him? I know it's a little complex. All he's saying is this. The wilderness generation did not enter rest because if they had entered rest so long later in Psalm 95, David wouldn't be saying to the church then and the church now, today enter his rest. The promise of rest remains. Have you entered it yet? Verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The question then is, have you entered his rest? Have you ceased from your works? Have you stopped trying to gain your own salvation and trusted in Christ? Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give accounts. Church, we can cease from trying to earn our own salvation and all of us in various ways fall back into the default mode that God only loves me if I'm doing well and it's a lie you can't earn it it's freely given George Whitfield said trying to earn the love of God is like building a rope made of sand and trying to climb to the moon with it we can rest from basing our acceptance with God on our performance. We can rest from the treadmill living, the performance-driven life. Treadmill living, you know, is where you set out your treadmill in front of your home and uh, hop on trying to run around the block. A week later, you've made no progress and you're tired and your neighbors think you're weird. Because of the crucified and risen Jesus, it is finished the gospel's true the tomb is empty it's the difference between do and done every other religion and even bad versions of christianity say do 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 the gospel says done you can never do enough and so quit trying give up 
Surrender and trust in Christ crucified on your behalf. We've sung Rock of Ages recently. We're going to sing it again. It's absolutely spot on. Listen to these lyrics. You only really find rest when you can not only sing these lyrics, but rest and rejoice in these lyrics. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? If I was as zealous as I could be all the time for the Lord, if that's it, it's not enough. Should my passions never fade? Could my tears forever flow? All could never sin erase. All my efforts weighed, you must save and save by grace. All for sin could not atone, you must save and you alone. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. Naked we come to him for dress. Helpless we look to him for grace. Wretched to the fountain fly, wash us Savior or we die. So the gentle and lowly Lord invites you to come. Come to him and find rest. Jesus says, come and have your guilt removed. Jesus says, come and have your sins taken away. As far as the east is from the west. Jesus says, come and have your conscience cleansed. Lay your pillow on your head at night with a confident smile on your face. Knowing who you are and knowing whose you are. Knowing that if God is for you, none can be against you. Jesus says, come. He says, find your identity in me. Resonate with Paul. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. He is my life. On my best day or my worst day, I'm his and he is mine. Jesus says, come. He says, find hope in me. He says, find life beyond the grave. Quit being short-sighted. Jesus says, come, find a family, a family that goes deeper than your blood, but is united around my shed blood. Jesus says, come, find your purpose here. Find your mission. Live for me. This is the good life. This is the way you ought to live. This is the way I have designed it. Life the way it was meant to be lived. You want to find your life, he says. Don't make it about you. Make it about me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But if you lose your life for his sake in the gospels, then you will save it. Jesus bids us come. Arms wide, nail pierced hands open. And he says, I am where you find rest. Come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So rest has been realized because of what Jesus has done. 
But don't, doesn't everyone in here battle with restlessness? Rest has been realized. It was established. It was lost. It was promised. It has been realized, but it's not yet total, which is what we're waiting for. It's that fifth plot in the story hook in the plot line. And that's rest complete. We do rest in Christ now, but it's really just a foretaste of what we're in for. It's just a foretaste of the resurrection. In the gospel, we have the appetizer, but we still await the main course. Whereas the last book of the Bible says, no longer will anything be accursed. You ready for that day? Resting and rejoicing in our God for all eternity. Revelation 14, 13 says this. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for your word that gives us so much in this life. And God, I know there are many, many weary people in this room, weary, weary and, and heavy laden for a multitude of reasons. And I pray that they would look to you, that they would find refreshment for their soul, that they would find encouragement in the rest that's found in a God who loves them. May the finished work of Christ be the foundation for everything we do. Help us to persevere. Help us to finish well. Help us to rest in him. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, we've got a lot to sing about, huh? Let's fill this room with booming voices from hearts brimming with gratitude.